0: Well, good morning. Good to see you all. God bless you. If anyone needs a Bible, please raise your hand so one of the ushers or elders can bring a Bible to you. That way you can follow along line by line and verse by verse. Anyone need a Bible this morning? I want to make sure you have a, an opportunity to have the Word of God in your hands. Everyone good? All right. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We've come as far as Luke chapter 13. It's so good to see you all. God bless you. What a beautiful day we have before us, but every day is beautiful when Jesus Christ is on the throne, amen? Never ever changes, praise God, he's the Ancient of Days. Well, we've been in this beautiful um, Gospel of Luke, again, focused predominantly on the humanity of Jesus Christ, it's one of the themes of the book of Luke, and as we've come as far as uh, chapter 13, we left off with Jesus speaking, again, if you remember going back to 11, right around chapter 11. There was a disciples that came up to him and asked him the question, you know, they, uh, you know, how do we pray? And we watched, you know, the Lord so beautifully and gently answer that, and he drew them to the perfect prayer. And then from that, we saw the religious leaders um, become indignant with Jesus Christ, couldn't understand, you know, how he was able to do miracles and do the different things he was doing. And Jesus, you know, they, they basically, they didn't have anything on him. They had nothing on a three-year public ministry. They had nothing on his whole life. Uh, He was without sin, so the best they could do is say, oh, it must be a demon, you know? And then Jesus came back, and so gently again and and graciously, he said, that's ignorant. He said, you know, a kingdom of God can't even be divided against itself, nor can the kingdom of the enemy. Even, Even Lucifer understands that, that a kingdom divided will fall. And so he began to go through and start teaching, not only for the multitudes, for the disciples, but he six months... To the point of his crucifixion. So time is of the essence. And he knows that he's, uh, as a matter of fact, in the passage we're going to leave today, this will be the last time that's recorded in our Gospels that he will be in a synagogue and teaching. From here out, he will be going at such a fast clip and pace as the Lord leads him that. He won't be in the synagogue teaching no longer, but he's still trying to make every moment of every uh, second to uh, as he's making his way towards Jerusalem to the cross to make sure everyone has the opportunity to receive him as Lord and Savior. And that's his desire of his heart, that they would receive the gospel. And so we're going to pick up on in Chapter 13 where he has come, and he he basically left off with um, very sobering words when he gave the example to the religious leaders, predominantly I think he was talking to, as well as the multitudes but he said, look, if you knew that your adversary had a claim against you or had a problem with these, it's much better to settle with your adversary before you end up going to the courts or the magistrates. Because when you appear before the judge, that's not the time to try to work it out. It's already too late. When you stand before the judge, the case is going to be presented. And that's not an opportunity at that time to then come back and try to change the facts of the case. The facts are the facts. And so he's been sort of leaning into this point because Again, in Judaism, going back, the idea that a Jew would come back and say, well, I'm, I'm a son or I'm a daughter of Father Abraham. And they would rely on the genealogy or on their heritage or in some capacity like that for salvation, not recognizing that even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we read in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith, it says what? That it was accounted, righteousness was accounted to them by faith. And so they had gotten away from that. At least the the religious leaders weren't teaching that. And so there was a lot of legalism. And and much like our days, people come up to you tomorrow. Maybe if the Lord gives us another day tomorrow, you'll wake up. You'll go into your office or your home or wherever you are. And somebody might say to you, did you hear? You know, they didn't have CNN. They didn't have Fox News. They didn't have whatever you listen to, right? They didn't have that. So they would, and they're going to come to Jesus with a current condition that's going on. And they're going to want Jesus to say, Help us understand this. Help us understand this in the light of what you're teaching. And yet these evil things are still happening. Help us reconcile this, Lord. And I think it's good for us 2,000 years today because are we not living in a falling and dying world? Are we not living in a world that's growing more and more evil by moment by moment or day by day? Isaiah 5 said that would be. It's prophetic. They would call the days evil or they would say that things are good, but they're evil. They have it upside down. So we're seeing these things before our very eyes. And I think having the same word penetrate our hearts, giving us biblical foundation and understanding, is the right way as disciples to proceed. Otherwise, we too can find ourselves in the same place where all of a sudden we might go, well, man's wisdom, or what about superstition, or what about this, or what about that? And next thing you know, we're chasing all these things, and we've abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you here. We just ask, uh, Lord, allow your word to go forward and speak into our hearts, anoint your word as we gather on uh, our time in celebration of communion as well here this morning. We pray, Jesus Christ, that, um, Lord, give us these eyes to see and ears to hear. Settle our hearts, Lord. Whatever we've been carrying around this week, Lord, it's time for us to lay it down. That's not our yoke. Lord, you've given us a perfectly fit yoke, Lord. We want to put that on. We want to come follow you. We want to be learners of you, wash our minds, renew our hearts, Lord. Let us hear what your spirit has to say, God. Simplicity and truth is what we desire here this morning, simplicity and truth. We ask this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen, amen. amen. All right, again, Luke chapter 13, and we'll look at verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans, in other words, Jews from the north, whose blood Pilate, right, had mingled with their sacrifices. So right out of the gate, you know, Jesus just had this teaching. He's going get right, you know, repent, get right, you know, settle these affairs before you st- ultimately go to the judge. Who's he talking about? God the Father. Get right, right? Jesus Christ is the way to do that before you end up, you know, going to heaven and standing before Jesus, before our Father, because once you're there, it's too late. There is no do-overs. It's too late. Your decision has been made, and it has eternal consequences, and the decision must be made in this life, not in the next. And so he clearly goes, and, and they say, but, but did you hear that Pilate, this, this man that's this overseer, this governor, in this area, he, these Jews, they were doing nothing wrong. It's not like they were committing evil or atrocity. We read nothing about that. They were following religion. They were doing what they were told to do in some capacities under the law, which was not wrong. If you were under the law, if you were Jewish, that was, again, it was a tutor to the time of Christ. But they were doing what was right. So they came and they offered sacrifice. In the midst of them offering a sacrifice, Pilate orders... Someone from his uh, command, you know, commandment that way to go and slaughter those Jews that were doing that. I can't think of anything more repulsive than that. And that's what he means when he says that their blood becomes mingled with the sacrifice. As the sacrifice was being made and being offered that way, the blood, their blood got intermingled with the holy and pure offering to the Lord. What kind of man would do such a thing, right? A violent, unstable, uh, certainly an evil And Jesus answered and said to them, this is his response to the latest media hit, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? He almost anticipates their thoughts. He doesn't turn around and just say, that's terrible, but, you know, they're with my Father in heaven. He doesn't respond that way. He actually comes back anticipating their thoughts and said, let's clear a couple things up here. Do you think this happened to them? Because somehow they were worse, sinners are worse off than anyone else? I think it's important. The idea today, just as it was 2,000 years ago, is if you really want to track it back in biblical history, it goes back all the way to the beginning of humanity, even the antediluvian period, right? So you go back really early on in Genesis, you go back to some of the early patriarchs, like Job. What did Job's accusers think when, you know, his friends even? I call them his accusers, but his friends What did they come and say? Job, what have you done to the Lord that this calamity should fall upon you? Even at the time Jesus is writing this, it would have been shocking to the Jewish audience, the multitudes that were gathered. Wait a minute. You're telling me that these Galilean Jews, these men from the north that came to work, clearly they must have had a secret sin or there must have been something evil or what they were practicing in their own lives. And I think we're all honest here this morning. Has there not been a time in your life where maybe you've hinted just at a little bit of superstition, something that was going on, like, oh, no, I don't like to go to work this way. I've seen an accident there before. Or I want you to really think about this, how it's, it seems so innocent. And, like, well, you know, I, I think of our, athletic, you know, our sports players, you know, as a hockey player. I was a hockey player. I mean, back in the day, you know, didn't change certain garments until after the playoffs were over, you know, my poor mother, she'd come in the house, it would reek to high heaven, you know, the woman was, you know, just beautiful, because I, the stench, because you didn't wash them, because, you know, somehow there's something special about those socks, or, you know, whatever that you're wearing, but I, I, I won't go any further than that, but the, the point is, is that it was, it was not good, they began to reek, right, and it's that idea of superstition, it's, 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 it's those thoughts. It's, there's no proof from that. There's no proof anywhere in Scripture. As a matter of fact, it's contrary to that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 says, Doesn't the rain come on the just and the unjust? You see, without that knowledge, without that biblical understanding, we can become fearful. We could become concerned or even confused. And I think that's exactly what was going on because at the end of the day. They're probably thinking, what's it matter anyway? Look at these guys. They were just doing, I mean, could you say anything else? They were, they were offering sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, can you think of a more pure thing that you could be in the middle? It'd be like you and I standing up and worshiping and somebody slaughtering us while we're worshiping the Lord. Is there not something, are we hurting anybody else? Are we, are we doing anything that would be evil? Is that not something that's holy and good? And in the midst of that, their blood was shed by this wicked and evil man. I mean, does it matter, Lord? And Jesus is saying, just be careful. Before somebody here is so quick to point something out or think, and it's got a twofold lesson, and if you think about it, the first one is time matters. There's no one that's guaranteed a tomorrow or even an hour from now. An appointed time, it says in Scripture, we have been given an appointed time, and only Jesus Christ knows when that appointed time is. No man, no mortal does. And what we do with the time we have matters. And so he's pointing out to these, you know, Galileans, these men that didn't weren't doing anything wrong. He says, Was this a punishment? Was it was that is that what you were thinking? Were they worse sinners? And he says, No, of course they weren't. Of course they weren't. He goes on to say, um, I tell you, verse three. No, he makes it very clear. But unless you repent, you also likewise perish. He's making it clear that the unjust and the just all have one thing in common. And that's if we're not raptured first, right? And that is physical death. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever have that in common unless we're raptured out the believers. What matters is what comes after that. And that is what only the believer has in Jesus Christ through his blood that was shed for you and I on Calvary, and that's remission of sin. That when we stand, when we close our eyes, when we, as the Bible would say, sleep, as it describes it often that way, when we open our eyes, because it's in a second, in a moment, and we're standing, it's not like we ever truly stop existing. It's not like our spirit ever shuts down. Just because the body fails, the spirit doesn't, right? You are more than your your mind, your body, your you know my fat. You know, you're more than all of that, right? You have a spirit and in living inside of you, a soul. And he's describing that when those that moment comes and those eyes are closed and they open, it's not it's not that yes death has occurred, but you are standing before Christ and there's an account that must be given. And he's saying at that point, the decision you made in this life has eternal consequences, and when you stand before Jesus, you're either going to stand guilty as charged or washed and covered and justified by the blood of the Lamb. There's the only two places you're going to stand. There is no gray. There's no relativism. There's no, well, maybe God will see it this way. He's a righteous judge, and whether you are just or not, death is going to come. It's a fact of life unless you're raptured. So make that decision for salvation today. That's what he's really saying here. He's saying, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell, right? Another news hit that must have happened at that time, and it killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners? Is that why they died? Is that why God let them die than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I think today we understand that would life expectancy as long as it is today, I think all of us know there's some 80-year-old individual, male or female, that I always say you either get bitter or you get better. You either get bitter or better. And I think most of us understand as we get older, there's that bitter or better that happens. And it really has everything to do with who's your Lord and Savior, who's your master. Because if Jesus Christ is your master, you become better. But if he's not, you become bitter with this life. Because your health begins to fail. Everyone's health does. And you begin looking and you're in pain and, you know, why am I here and why am I not dead? I'd rather be dead. Take me out back and shoot me like a horse. You know, there comes that point. But if you're a believer in Christ, you know you're here for a purpose. And God has you here and he's not done with you yet. And so the idea that even this tower and this, this, that fell on these individuals, don't make the mistake of thinking. That, well, it was because God was upset with them or punishing them, right? And and that's why, no, no, no. This can happen to righteous men, righteous women. Why does God allow an 80-year-old? We're going to continue to read this here in a minute. Why does God allow a 2-year-old to be, you know, able to be home with Jesus? And yet there's an 80-year-old that's just, man, they're just bitter. They're just angry, (laughs) They're angry with God. They're shaking their fist at Him, and and they hate life. They they would say they hate Him. They would say they hate everybody. And you know they they go on. And, you know why does God allow someone like that to live? And yet someone who was innocent, if we can say that, we know we know we're all born into sin nature. But when we say innocence as a child, that didn't harm or hurt anyone else. We might say it that way. We know none are justified at birth. We understand that all have fallen. And and all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1 through 3 teaches us that. Not one person ever born is ever without sin, except Jesus Christ. But as we read this, we we have to ask those questions in our minds. We all know someone that we think died earlier or more premature than we would think for their lives in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And somebody else is just hanging on, and boy, they're just a real not nice person. I think that's the best word. I can, that's the best group of wording I can use. Not a nice person to be around. Why does God allow that? Well, he's going to tell us that. But he wants us to understand that God is a righteous judge. He's not a respecter of persons. But he does give a time. And he does everything he can to help that person, to fertilize that heart, that soil, that ground, so that they will make a decision for Jesus Christ. He says, I tell you, no, but unless, he draws it right back to the point, you repent, you will likewise perish. Death is not the end for the Christian. We have to understand that. If this is the first time you're hearing that this morning, this is great news. If you already believe this and you know the scriptures, again, it's great news. Your death is not the end. It's just the beginning of eternity. But it doesn't cease here. He then gives them a parable, right? He wants to reinforce this idea. He also spoke a parable. A certain man had a fig tree. Now, we we understand the idea of expositional consistency. It's, It's a fancy term. It's a theological term. The idea is whenever in Scripture we see something being used by the Lord as an illustration or a picture of example, I'll use a simple one, leaven. What does leaven represent in Scripture? Sin. Many of you know that. Sin, right? Okay. So, for example, a fig tree. What is a fig tree typically representative of in scripture? The nation of Israel. Many of you know that you've read the scriptures. Maybe some of you didn't. Write that in your margins here. So a certain man had a fig tree. He's clearly making an illustration to the nation of Israel. Planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Now, this is really important in those days. They didn't have the piggly wiggly down the street or the supermarket, right? They lived off of what they planted, what they grew in their yard, the rain, everything, it all mattered. And so if you go in your backyard and you have this beautiful tree and it's all leaves and no fruit, is it sustaining you? Is it for feeding you? Or is it just taking up space and good nutritious earth that could be used to grow something else? Well, we have to think and understand it's an agrarian society. We're talking about a culture 2,000 years ago than the way Jesus Christ is writing this. So he says that this Man, and it's really the God-man here, he planted a fig tree, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. This is the spiritual illustration he's giving us. And he came seeking fruit. He came, right? The Immaculate Conception, born uh, by, we say, on earth. We know he was always existing in heaven, but on earth that way. And he said he came to the nation of Israel. That's what we read here. And he said he found what? None. He found no fruit. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, I think of our Father in heaven, look, for three years I have come. Isn't that interesting, three years? I wonder if he just, was is that his Galilean ministry, a three-year ministry, a public ministry. So clearly we know what he's talking about. Seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, this is the keeper of the fig tree. Let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it and fertilize it, and it bears fruit well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. What's the idea Jesus is teaching us here? Is that when you see these things, it's not just or unjust. God is not a respecter of persons. When there's somebody that you're sitting there, boy, they are bitter and they're 80 years, old and this young person's been taken home, which is a beautiful blessing. We not we don't we don't think of it that way in the moment because we're hurt and we miss them and we want them with us, but they've been given to the Lord and He's There's their father and he's calling them home, which is natural because we're all called to go home one day. And he's, you know, sooner rather than later, he goes, but what happens when this person, even though God is fertilizing it, doesn't come to Christ? Ultimately, what happens? It has to get what? Cut down. And to to teach any other... Any other message, any other alternate gospel or responsibility to this is a lie. It's a lie from the pulpit to not say that the consequences you make today, or excuse me, the decision you make today have eternal consequences with the future as far as where you're going to spend eternity. Because everyone gets resurrected, the scriptures teach. Some to everlasting life, With Jesus Christ in heaven, and some to eternal damnation with gnashing of teeth in hell. And to teach anything else is not true love. It's not true love. Calling sin stuff is not true love. Jesus makes it clear repentance is needed. No one knows, neither did those men when they were sacrificing to the Lord, they had come with the right heart, they were gonna worship. And God allowed it. Wickedness of Pilate, but God allowed it. The tower that fell on these men in Siloam, God allowed it. Did that day they know that they were going to die? And what if they hadn't made a decision? What if they were so caught up in their religion instead of an individual and personal relationship with Jesus God? Where would they be? And that's the point. That's what he's saying here. This is the time now. But the reality is that time is not going to exist forever. It ceases the moment your heart stops beating and your life is taken from you on this earth. That's when it ceases. There is no do-over. I, I, I feel like we need to preach that from the mountaintops. People need to hear that. Because people rationalize and, 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 well, the Lord knows, or one day, or, you know, I'm really caught up in this drug, or I'm with this girl, I'm four, you know, he'll understand. All these things that we, we interject and we put in those places because, well, you know, God's, God's compassion and love. In my Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God is love, but God began with light, which is truth. And from that truth is an expression of his perfect love love, but it begins with truth. It's not a compromise. It's not, well, Jesus brings the love so I can, I can, you know, compromise with the truth. It's the fullness of truth and the fullness of love. It's not a balancing act. It's not like somebody here says, you know what? I like a little more pepperoni on my pizza. I like a little more mushroom on mine. No, it's the fullness. It's not a balancing act. It's very, very important for us to understand in the Christian walk. What did the nation of Israel do as they presumed upon the Lord, as they practiced idolatry? I encourage you all to be with us on Wednesdays. We're going through the Old Testament. We're in First Chronicles. We're reading almost a recap from a priestly perspective, perception, all the things that are going on, and what are we hearing about? And he keeps reminding that post-exilic group, those individuals that have now just come out of 70 years of captivity, that are now in come out of Babylon, are back in Jerusalem. They're going to reestablish the temple. They're going to reestablish worship. They're going to reestablish the things that God had ordained in obedience. And when he reminds them of why their parents, because remember, they didn't have 70 and 80 year lifespans back then, you know, 35, 40, 40 plus years would have been the average lifespan. Two generations maybe had already died while in captivity. So he's talking to a group of people that have never experienced this. They don't know the promises of God. They don't understand God's original design for what he was using Israel and his chosen people, still is today. It was disobedience. It was the idea that we took our opinions, I took my opinion, and I somehow elevated it over God. And I know we we don't aim to do that, I know we don't think we do that. But the reality is, is there anyone in here this morning, honestly, transparently, you can look at me with your eyes here for a minute. I'm I'm trying to speak to your soul, your spirit, your hearts, that we can honestly say that we have not done that very thing, that we have not taken an opinion, and we've tried to elevate it over the direct word of God as far as what Jesus Christ says in obedience. I know I have. I know I have. And that's why I repent, and I need to get right with the Lord and have right relationship when I do that. And that's where it all begins to fall down. And, and so here he is, and he's, he's trying to tell Israel, I came, there's no fruit. You were given the word. You, get, you were given the law. It was a pointing. It was a, it was a measuring. Rod. It was a pointing set to me. All of the sacrifices, all of the feet, all of these things were pointing to my coming, the seed, the Messiah. And he says, I'm here, and all I see is leaves, but I don't see any fruits. And he's talking to his chosen people. Please pay attention to this. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Again, this is the last time He'll be doing this on a Sabbath, teaching in a synagogue. It's the last time we have it recorded in Luke here for us. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. And he was, and she was bent over, though in the Greek, it, it, it's, It's a powerful word. It it literally means uh, if you've ever had like a really bad stomach ache or to the point of like a diverticulitis or a diverticulum or something. I'm trying to give things that a kidney stone or or something to the point of where you can't get up. You are literally hunched over. You can't stand up because the pain is so intense. It's like a 10 out of 10. That's the word that the Greek uses here to to help us understand the, the severity of this here. And she's bent over and could no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her, her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. A couple things we see. Here he is in the synagogue. He's there to teach the word. He's opening the word. That's what Jesus did. That was his modus operandi up to this point. He would go in the synagogue every Saturday, the Shabbat. He would walk in. And he would certainly open the scrolls, whether it's Isaiah, whether it was the, you know, the Decalogue, or whether he was going to the Old Testament prophets, he would open and he would, you know, he would begin to read Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, we have a recording of it in scripture in our gospels when he says, Today this has been fulfilled before your very hearing. That's what he did, line by line, verse by verse. That's what Jesus did when he was on earth. And he came and he made it plain and simple. And so here he is, he's in the synagogue, and as he's getting ready to probably walk up to that area where he would, you know, open the scroll that way, it's that part of the service that that would occur. He walks by and he sees this woman. He doesn't take his eyes off her. He recognizes a need. Jesus never misses your needs. He doesn't miss one single need you have. He's not indifferent to it. He's completely compassionate and loving. He doesn't miss one of your needs. He sees this woman, everybody else around, well, that's, you know, Susie. And it's been going on for 18 years. And that's just the way she is. Not with Jesus. He walked into that synagogue. He knows what he's there to do. He's there to teach the gospel. word. of the But he also turns around, he looks at her. He says, come here, come to me. And right at that moment, he said the most sweet things that this woman could have ever heard in her life. Stand up. Do you even know how to do that anymore? Eighteen years is a long time. You've had a cold. You've been sick. You've been infirm, some of you, right? You've had diseases. We've had these things in our lives. Maybe a year. Maybe a couple years, three or four. Right? Most of us, I'll speak about me, I get sick more than seven days. Lord, when is it going to end? I'm never getting better. This is all Lord. Lisa, come hold my hand. My wife. I'm dying, right? I'm I'm wrecked by TV. Elizabeth, I'm coming, right? I'm wrecked. But she's having this moment, right? Where she's, and yet it doesn't escape Jesus. It doesn't escape him. No matter how busy he is, no matter what's going on, no matter what his purpose is in that moment, he doesn't miss the need he calls called her to him and said to her woman now some of you are like oh especially in our politically correct day right i'm the only guy probably not politically correct in this room right now but in our politically correct, woman right this isn't like you know yo woman That's not what jesus is doing this is beautiful actually you know why because the rest of those in the synagogue including the religious leader they're indifferent to this this woman. She wasn't even a woman to them. She's, she's unclean. She's diseased. After all, remember what we just got learned in chapter 13, 1 through 5? Uh, she, clearly she's that way. She must have sinned against God. There must be some reason this has happened to her. Or she lacks faith, of course. That's, that's the modern version of it in the church today. Oh, you're not healed? Oh, you, you don't have enough faith. You know, there's a lie from the pit of hell. Sometimes that can be true, but majority of the time it's not. And it's not because you've sinned. That's possible, but there's other reasons. God allows it. Many times it says draw us into a tighter, deeper relationship of reliance upon him and not upon self, which is a beautiful gift. Uh, we may not think that in the moment of our crisis and circumstance, but it is because God is bigger than our circumstances. But he's this woman. and Again, this is, this is beautiful because he knows who and how he created her to be. He didn't go, and what's your pronoun? How would you like me to refer to you? He didn't say that. He knows biologically exactly who he created her to be. She's a woman, and she was designed by God to be a woman, and it's a gift from the Lord. That's why the enemy's attacking it. He's trying to take and disturb that and remove that and and create some type of parallel reality because then we become even more distant from the one true God that gave us life and with intention. The other aspect here, he's going not come up and go, animal. I mean, I can think of a whole other terms that they would have used in that day, but a, a way to be, you know, condescending. This, this, she's, she's useless. She, as we read, she takes space up. She doesn't even do it. She's punched over the whole time. She's of no good use to us. What is she there for? She's just, you know, no, Jesus doesn't respond that way. He goes back to her and says to her, woman. He refers to her humanity. The fact that he knit her in her mother's womb, and he has a plan to her, and she's not an animal. She matters to Jesus, just like you, sons of the living God, daughters of the living God. If you're not saved in your hair, you're God's creation. You may not be his child yet, but you're his creation. He loves you, and he intended a life and a purpose for you. He's going to prosper you, but you got to do it his way. It's like a good father, he wants to protect his kids. But if you run away from home, you do all these things. No, you're going to face consequences. Life is hard. But when you enter back into the fold, you can't help but bless it. Maybe not always the way you would want, but absolutely what you need. And so he refers to, again, a beautiful woman, man, a term of, you know, of endurement, Ish, Ishta, right? You are loosed from your infirmity. You are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And the most amazing, wonderful thing, when something like that happens, what do you do? You begin to worship. It's a natural response. When you receive something that no man, no physician, no doc, nobody could do for you. God did this for this woman. 18 years. You think she maybe started to lose hope? You think she maybe started to think, what am I even here for? Does God really love me? God, have a plan for me? She's still at synagogue. That tells us some things, doesn't it? Tells us she's still coming, seeking, still looking, still desiring to be taught even in her present circumstance. She wanted more of the Lord. She wasn't pushing or running away from God. She was running to him the best way she knew how. The best way she knew how. Where the word of God was being taught and she could be under it. That's all she had in her control. Amen. She couldn't control anything else. But what she could do, she sat under the word of God, and that's where she knew she needed to be. And God met her there, didn't he? He always meets you there. And she glorifies God. Now, unfortunately, we read in our scripture, but, circle it in your Bible if you got a But, but the ruler of the synagogue. Why do we have to have this? Why is the carnality in the human condition, the flesh so strong? But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. This means he's furious he's indignant right because jesus healed on the shabbat and he said to the crowd notice he doesn't look at jesus and say this he looks to the people why because where are all the people looking at this point upon the woman and jesus mostly jesus because he's the one that just did this wonderful miracle for this woman where are their eyes not on the man the ruler of the synagogue their eyes aren't on him anymore So what's that mean? Oh, no, no, we can't have this. You know, we got to play church here, right? We got to play Christian here. So everybody's got to come in and kiss the ring. Got to kiss the ring. Some of you are like, wow, man, that's heavy. Am I bearing false witness? Is that not what religions do? Is that different than a relationship with Jesus Christ? You better believe it. You're not kissing a man's ring. You come to hear from Jesus in the Word of God. You're not here for man's wisdom. He is trying to regain the control. That's what he's trying to do because the the, the scene is, and let the video play in your mind. Jesus, right then and there, is doing exactly what the Father has him to do. He's in the will of God perfectly. The ruler of the synagogue is standing there, going, well, "This isn't supposed to happen." This is, what are we gonna do now? This is ruined everything. I had a plan today. We we're gonna to, we we're gonna do this. You know, he was gonna do this, and we're gonna have you know a meal, and then we... he says, "I gotta pull back the attention." No, no, no. I got to, I'm in charge. I gotta let people know I'm in charge. I gotta exert my authority. He says there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath. This is a legalist. We got no room for legalists in the church. There's no room for a legalist in the church. You know, this is, what he's doing here is he's misrepresenting God and he's misinterpreting the word of God. The two things that I know the Lord hates, right? Is when he takes men, take the flock of God and they misrepresent the scriptures or they lay things upon them that is not biblical. And whether that's religion, whether that's traditions, whether that's even feast day, all you fill in, fill in the blank. It's not about relationship. That, that's, the, you see, this is the biggest problem today, even in the church. And I, I look, I'm not trying to, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying it because I'm watching it happen in our area. I'm watching churches that have been established in our area for 20, 15, 30 years. And I'm watching the men that are called to pastor those churches. At least I believe they are. I believe they're, you know, they better be called by God. And they're standing up, and and I don't know what they're teaching anymore. They're not teaching the Word. People aren't bringing their Bibles. They're coming in for a feel-good message. Ears are getting itched and tickled. But people aren't walking away knowing more about Jesus, understanding more of His Word, and a depth to relationship. Because after all, Ephesians 4 says what? Why do we do what we do in church? Do we just do this because we are following what our parents did? It's because it is a good idea? Or does Ephesians 4 very clearly tell us what the work of a church is? To equip saints for what? The work of the ministry. That's why you're here and I'm here this morning. And that's why we're under the word of God together. Because he's equipping saints. You and I, the Hagios, the the believers in Christ. He's equipping all of us to do what? To sit down and go back to our homes and just be really comfortable? Or to do what? to go out and do the work of God, to be the very vessels, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we must be equipped because only what's poured in can be what? Poured out. Yeah, I feel that way sometimes too. So, yeah, it's heavy. So, you know, we read this here and what we see is truth and love again. We see from this man misrepresentation. There's no love from this man, is there? Is there any compassion, this poor woman suffering for 18? He's indifferent. Is there any love when he tries to misrepresent the scriptures when he turns around and says that? And Jesus, I love our Lord. What does he do? And again, I'm bringing this out because this is the same problem we're having today in the church. And unless we start dealing with it, unless men stand up and start teaching the word of God again, and I know we do that here, but I'm saying unless... All around this area, Harrisburg, West Shore, East Shore, unless the word of God starts getting taught, what are we doing? It's like a vine in the ground that's just taking up space. It's becoming a weed. Don't call it the bride of Christ. The universities in our area that are, you know, compromising and getting off the, you know, Christian universities that call their name and they do, and they're not teaching word. What are they doing? Don't call yourself a Christian university then. You see, this religious leader, he can't get out of his own way. He can't. And, and, and I'm, I'm saying this because there's Christian schools in our area. I'm talking K-12s. And they go by the name Christian school. But when you really look at the curriculum, are they being taught the word of God? Is it the centerpiece of the curriculum? Or is it we're Christians, so we're going to now do this and add this on? Like, they're not all equal. Jesus is going to bring this out in a moment. It's very important for us to see. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to be Bereans to these things. We shouldn't have to settle. There's never a reason to settle. He goes on and he, he, he can't get out of the way of himself, this man. And certainly this religious leader can't get out of the way of God either. I mean, Jesus is right there. And the Lord answered him and said, and with one word, he makes it very clear. Actor. That's the Greek word for the word hypocrite. Actor. That's what you are. You're playing church. You're playing synagogue. You're an actor. Do not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to water or to water it? You know the answer to that is Every single person, and donkey and ox, it was your John Deere, or if you prefer a Kubota right? That's your John Deere. That's how you plowed your field. That's how you, you know, we're talking an agrarian society. They, you know, they're working the crop, the land. They survive that way. He says, do you wake up and just leave your animal tied out there and not go and bring water to the animal or food? Do you not loose it and bring it out to pasture? Is that not work? But instead you turning around and you're, you're, you're watching me lay hands and heal this woman And you're declaring that that is an abomination to the Lord. And yet you are doing the very same thing. You are treating an animal better than you are treating a human being. And you know what he said to that? Hypocrite. You're an actor. You're not honoring the scriptures. You're not not portraying Jesus Christ. You're misrepresenting him. You're misrepresenting his word. You're taking my law and you're making a mockery of it. Because you took and you, you brought legalism instead of bringing truth and love. You brought a substitute. And you did that so you could control the people. So you could draw the people to yourself. Which is why Jesus says, I hate the Nicolaitans. And he says that in Revelation. Why? Because he was talking about the church age. Oh, by the way, what age are we living in today? The church age. 2,000 years later, it's still happening today. He says, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox and donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham? According to your tradition, she's a daughter of Abraham. She's under that. Should she not? What? Whom Satan is bound. We see who's the one that gave her infirmity. God allowed this. We see that. Think of it. I love when Jesus says, he says, just think of it for a minute. Put yourself in her place. You walk around hunched over, can't even get up for 18 years. And you're telling me this is against the law? To do this good, to heal and bless this woman? You're telling me this doesn't honor Jesus Christ? Just think of it. What are you talking about? You're eisegeting. You're reading into the word. You're mirror reading. You're not exo exo in the Greek out. You're not allowing the word of God to speak. This is for 18 years. He draws their attention to it again. 18 years this woman suffered. Where is your compassion, religious leader? Where is the compassion, the multitudes? Church, where is the compassion for the bride of Christ? Where is the compassion for those that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? And look, I know I'm I'm speaking to the like-minded believer here. I get it. We're in unity here. I understand. I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters that feel the same way. But it stirs me. It stirs my heart. It convicts me in a beautiful way, never to get complacent. Just because I see someone infirm doesn't mean I should expect God not to eventually heal them and or do something beautiful. And I shouldn't immediately write them off and think, well, Lord, you're done with them, and there's no reason they can't serve because of an age or because of an infirmity. No. God used this woman and she struggled and suffered for 18 years so that at that very moment she could be the very action sermon that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would use to describe to that synagogue who he loves that God is able to heal, God sees every need, and God is ready. Be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. That answer's it there, isn't it? Right? He manipulated the law and all the multitudes. What did they do? They were finally set free. Because you know what legalism does? It binds people. It ties them up. It locks them back in the prison cell of their minds, of their hearts and their souls. And Jesus broke that prison door open. And yet there's men and women that want to put people back in that prison for no other good reason than to manipulate and control. Run from it. If you're at a church and you're hearing this on the radio, you're online, you're at a place, and the word of God isn't being taught, run. I don't care how long you've been there. I don't care how many family relatives you've got there. I don't care. (laughs) Look, if the word of God isn't being taught, you're compromising. Again, I know this isn't popular from the pulpit. I, I understand that. I understand it's supposed to be a kumbaya. You know, the Roman Catholics, we're supposed to take the, the Muslims, we're supposed to take, you know, the, 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 the cults, you know, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we're all supposed to kind of come together in this kumbaya pluralism. You know, I, Rick Warren, fell, all these guys are falling because of this pluralism, and you know what, you know, let's, let's come together and it's worth it. No, it's not. Not when it contradicts the word of God. It, it's, there's one way. It's a narrow way. It's a narrow gate. We're going to read that in a, here in a moment. And, and this is real truth. This is love. This is, this, you want love? This is real love, friends. This is what real love looks like. It's not indifference to those struggling and not aware of what's really happening. Like when somebody comes up to you and says, um, I prefer to be called a woman. And they're clearly biologically a male. Is it right and loving to turn around and enter into their disreality? Is that real love? Do you think you, you may be appeasing them in the moment? Do you know what the suicide rate is for transgender individuals that go through that procedure? Do you know how high that is? 60 and 70 percent? It's a mental illness problem. And, and, and when we can, can compromise and when we sit down, and, instead of turning around and, and alienating that person, why don't you pull up a chair and have dinner with me? Maybe you're out at a restaurant and that happened, or maybe you're at a store. Come on over and talk to me for a minute. Don't, lo, love and truth. You take that, you, Jesus loves you and he created you perfectly. You know how I know that? Because you're here and he created you male. He purposed you. You're going to bless this world when you turn to Jesus Christ and give him your life. You'll never be the same. You'll never be the same. He has a plan and a purpose for you. Most of the time, okay, what pronoun? You do you. No, don't do you. No. That's what the enemy wants. He wants us to become indifferent. What does it say in the last days? Read your Bible. What's it say again? That the hearts of many will what? Say it with me. Come on, know your scripture. We'll grow cold. You know what another word for cold is? Indifferent, not involved, not willing to invest. It's not so much of just saying, well, my family's good. My kids are healthy. Things are good in my home. But when I look outside of my home, when I look at the family of God, when I look at, are there people that are struggling and hurting? Are they working and operating in a disreality? Real love is to sit down with that person and say, I'm sorry. You may want to be a pink pony, but you are not a pink pony. You are a son or a creation of God. You are a male, and it's wonderful. You are a female, and it's wonderful. And you declare it, and then you can read Ephesians 2 and declare all those things over their lives the enemy wants to shut that down so that those people end up harming themselves, doing terrible things. And that breaks my heart. I'm not willing to let that happen. The church needs to wake up, not let that happen to people that are the creation of God. He's got a plan for them. As we continue reading here. She Jesus's point was they where was his compassion to this and so what do the people begin to do when they're set free they rejoice for all the glorious things that were done by him they start praising God now he gives a parable para right means alongside right and then he uses the word um, uh, billa right in the Greek or bylaw which means uh, to throw so he says para he says um, basically. Para bilo, which means we say parable, but it means to take something and to throw it alongside something else. So he's already given an account. He gave a testimony, he gave a teaching, and now he's taking something and throwing it alongside that teaching to reinforce what he was just saying. That's the purpose of a parable. And so he said, then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? Please remember expositional consistency as we read all of scripture. There's not a single word that's going to contradict itself. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed. How many people know what a mustard seed is? Anybody in here ever seen a mustard? How small is that, right? Really small. Have you ever planted a mustard seed? Anybody in here? Nobody, okay, for the record. Nobody on the radio, okay. How many people in here have ever seen basil? You ever have a basil plant, right? Some of you ever plant basil and herb or maybe oregano in a garden? Anybody in here ever do that? Some of you, okay. I planted oregano, I planted basil. If I planted oregano or basil, and this thing grew up to be a 25-foot tree, I would think there's something very abnormal about that oregano or basil, right? And I mean, I love it. I put it on my pizza, I do the whole thing, right? I do my own I love it. But it's abnormal. It's an herb. You know, you know what herbs look like. There's you know, little it's not a bush, it's not a big plant, it's not a weed. Well, look at what we read here, because biblical consistency matters. Expositional consistency matters. That's how we understand these things, what he's trying to communicate to us. One of the most mistranslated passages in all of your scripture is the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Tried to be made to say something it was never intended to say. Use biblical exposition. Use biblical consistency. What is the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it? It is like a... Mustard seed, a small seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree. Matthew chapter 13 gives us additional detail that the smallest, mustard seed is one of the smallest of all seeds, and it's supposed to grow like a little herb, not like a tree. And then the birds, oh, wait a minute, now what are birds? Birds are good, right? They come in, no, no, no. Do you remember the parable? They, uh, the, the different, you know, some cast, some of the seed cast on the stone, some cast into, the, you know, he talked about the, the wayward, the parable of the way, you know, when the seed of word of God is being cast, does it fall on good ground, fertile ground, right? And he's, he describes the bird, that one of the things that the birds will do he is will come and devour the seed or will take the seed from what was just broadcasted or spread. Who does he define as the bird? It's the, it's Who? It's Satan. That's right. You know, it's the wicked one. It's evil, right? It's what we call expositional consistency. It's the same thing. It's the, it's a gospel of Luke. He's not trying to reinterpret this bird to be anything good. He's telling you, and this is going to be hard for people to hear, but he's telling it 2000 years ago because after all this religious leader in the synagogue is playing church and he's playing the Christian or he's playing the Jew. Okay. And in reality, he had nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Just because you see people in church doesn't mean everyone's saved, doesn't mean everyone is, is actually a believer, a born-again believer in Christ. And again, this may be hard for some of you to hear. For, for many of us, we, we've read our scripture, we know he's warning us about this because we don't go to churches looking for perfect people. We go to churches looking for forgiven sinners, that we grow together in unity and we build each other up in the Holy Spirit, Builds us up by being under the word of God, bearing each other's burdens. That's what a church is to do so that we're sent out again equipping saints for the work of the ministry. So here we see something very abnormal. This very large mustard seed. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus already said that. So he's explaining what it's like. Certainly he knows what it's like. He's God. And he said, and then there's this bird. Again, Matthew 13, uh, 4 tells us it's the wicked one. It's Satan, right? And birds, plural here, demons, demonic, uh, evil influences, fill in the blank, of the air nested in its branches. What's that saying to us? It's the same thing that the weed, and you know, the idea of the wheat and the what? Tears. tares. It's the same idea. He says, this is what the ha- the kingdom of God is like. And the kingdom of God is what? Present, isn't it? Because who lives inside of us? Jesus. He came to what? Bring the kingdom of God, right? We read our scriptures right in the beginning of our gospels. So he's already alluding to the fact that in the body of Christ, this is why people turn away from churches. And they don't obey the commandments in Hebrews, that says, do not fake, forsake the gathering of the saints. Why? Because they say, well, they're just hypocrites there. They're just actors. They know they're, they're this, they're that, you know. And they fill in the blank. And instead, they even look at the pastor. Oh, the pastor, you know, look at him. He's a mess. That's true. At least here, right? Okay, praise the Lord. We, go, we all acknowledge that. But Jesus isn't a mess, and he's the shepherd of this church. And he's the high priest. Right? I'm not. I'm no different than anybody else here. We're all working it, step to faith to faith, salvation, faith to faith. We're not pretending or playing church. It's wonderful not to have to do that. So he's laying this out for them because this is giving the explanation of why you're seeing this in the synagogue at that time and why it's so disrupting to you. Why would this religious man do these things? Because he's letting you know where he really hails from. He says he may speak Christianese, but he's not one of mine. He brings it out again in the parable of the leaven, he, just in case they didn't understand it. He says, and again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God, right? He, the first one is what shall I compare it? Now what he's saying, what should I liken it? It is like leaven. What does leaven mean in your scripture again? Sin or evil, which a woman took and hid in three measures. So she hid it. She comes, she hides like two or three cups of leaven sin, of meal till it was leavened, until it was what? Permeated. She comes into the church. She hides the sin. She starts, because leaven spreads, right, which is why you would take the leaven out of the house, right? And there would be no leaven allowed during the feast. You would take the leaven out because leaven just a little leaven, what spoils the lump? It Ruins the whole thing, right? So, remove all the sin from the home. Remove all the sin from the holiness. All the sin, right? We want to move the sin from the church. Holiness, purity. That's what he's talking about here. And what happens? Somebody comes in and they bring it. People become indifferent, like Corinthians, where there was a woman that was a guy that was having relations with his mother-in-law or whatever it was. There's another guy that's getting ready to sue another believer in Christ where you're not allowed to do, 1 Corinthians 6. We start to see these things, and it was being accepted in the church. And Paul said, no, no, no. I may not be there in person, but I'm writing in the spirit. These things are not okay. You need to cast that person out. You need to be buffeted by Satan. This is not okay. Church, don't come together and say, oh, let's just compromise. That's exactly what we see happening. You know, all all in this area. I mean, we have mega churches in this area. $21 million campuses. The word of God isn't being taught, and and people are going for the entertainment, for the show, going to punch the ticket. So he's clearly making it. He's clearly drawing the attention here to the fact that that leaven's going to spread, and eventually it's going to consume the body because people are going to start going along with it. That's why today people don't, Have you noticed this attention spans? Today, people don't have the attention spans. Our kids, I have four boys, as you know, young ones. I try to keep them off the electronics. I try to teach them. I used to bring them into the sanctuary to teach them how to sit. I love when I see families do that. I love it. When they bring the little ones, they're teaching them. That's the next generation. You know, how else are they going to learn that, right? How else are they going to learn when we see that? When they get age appropriate, they come in, they sit down, and they, I love that. But there's so many people today you know, I assure you, if I had the football game on for two hours, you're, you're there. You know, you're watching your daughter's dance recital. You're there. But an hour of the word of God? I mean, it's, we're not even there yet, an hour, but almost an hour of the word of God? Oh, my gosh. My butt cheeks are falling asleep. I can't do it. I'm going to die. Don't you hear my belly? It's growling. We laugh about it but is anybody saying this? Is anybody honest anymore about these things? Have we grown to the point where we can't stand biblical teaching and we can't endure it? It's too much. You know, there's pastors, even in movements, denominations, we see them sometimes they come in from different denominations. Change your teaching down to 25 minutes. It used to be 45. Now it's 25. Because people can no longer endure 20, you know, 45 minutes of solid teaching. What? Is that the problem? The the church needs to look like the world? Or does the people need to come out of the world and be refreshed and renewed by the word of God? Who's the author of this? And he went through the cities and villages and teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one of them said to the Lord, are there few who are saved? Good question. He's not going to really answer this till verse 31. And even then he doesn't answer it all. And it's a good question. We've all wondered about that. How many people are saved? You know, they wanted numbers, a million, two million, a billion. And he said to them, look what he, how he responds. He's speaking to them, plural, the crowd. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter th- and will not be able. When once... The master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. For he will answer and say to you, I do not know you and where you are from. What is he talking about there? He's saying that the gate, there's no, first of all, John teaches us that, right? John makes it very clear that there's only one way in, and that's by Jesus Christ, John fourteen six. There is no other way into the Father but through the Son, the narrow gate, but what is he also keeping? Remember, chapter 11 and 12, what's the context? Time. There's only so much time. He's telling us the how and the when. The how is through the narrow gate, Jesus Christ alone, not pluralism, no other way. And he's saying the when is while you still have time on this earth because when that time is elapsed, there is no other way. The master's going to get up and the the gate will be closed. And he comes to people then basically alluding to when they're standing before Jesus and saying, "Well, no, I changed my mind. Now I want to believe." Or now no no now, now I want to. And he's saying, "No." And he makes it very clear, I do not know you, where you are from. This is just talking to the multitudes that have been watching him and seeing him. Then you'll begin to say, because he already anticipates what they're going to say, hey, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in our streets. He says, we watched you. You did the miracles. We came to Bible studies. That was awesome. You entertained us. We came to the love feast. We did, you know, the afterglows. We did all these cool things. We were, you know, they did all these religious things. But what didn't they do? They didn't have relationship. They worshiped the works of God, not the God of the works. That's what he's saying here. He says, man, this is going to be a real wake-up call to the church because I think there's a lot of people walking around today that are attending these these places where there's a whole lot of entertainment, rock concerts, man. It's fun. They got programs for the kids. Nintendo's in the back. Everybody's moving and grooving. It feels good. And you're going to stand before Jesus Christ one day. This is very important. This is to the believers he's talking. He's not just talking on believers. He's talking to believers. And he says, what? He says, you know, these are the people who thought they were believers. And they ate, they drank, they did these things. They did religion. But they never had a relationship. But he will say, I tell you, I did not know you. Where you are from, depart from me. All you workers of iniquity. You know what he does there? He gives their evidence. The evidence is because you were not under the word of God, you didn't obey the Lord Jesus Christ, just like old times Israel and what happened to them. He says, now you will have consequences to that. What was their consequence? Their consequence was captivity for Assyria, the Assyrian invasion through Assyria, excuse me, and then also through the Babylonian invasion, 70 years through the Babylonian invasion. And he's saying, what, is the, what are the consequences for the unbeliever that's playing church? He says, one day you're going to stand before him and he's going to go, the evidence is right there. You're found in your iniquity and death. The blood of my, my blood never pierced your skin and never washed your heart because you were all about programs and you were all about Christianese and you were all about plain church, but you never had a transformation of heart. Again, Israel, he was talking to, you are all leaves and no fruit. 2,000 years later, Gentile church, born again believers in Christ, right? This is not, this is not for you. But those that are sitting in this church right now that are not born again believers, those that are watching online, those that are listening to this program every day, every day on the radio uh, on four thirty, those that are listening and they're hearing this message. This is he's saying, I know, I know, I know what no man can know. I know whether you're mine or you're not mine. And by the time you stand in heaven, there's not going to be an opportunity to say, well, you know what. I want a mulligan. I want to do-over. This is serious and sobering. This is very sobering. Depart from me. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're going to get ready to close right here. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which in chapter 11 of Hebrews, are all in the hall of faith because, I mean, sorry, yeah, the hall of faith because of their faith. But he goes back and says, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Can you imagine how shocking this was to the Jew of that day? Who says, but my father's Abraham. I'm born into it. No. But I'm part of the genealogy. No. Well, my mom, you know, we've been going to this church 40 years. That's your mom. It's has nothing to do with you. Well, my dad's an elder of the church. Certainly I must be. No. Well, I'm a PK kid. Nope. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you submitted and surrendered to him? Is he yours? It doesn't matter. It's a personal relationship. He's not a respecter of persons. And he's pointing that out. So shocking to the Jew of that day. They will come from the east, the west, from the north and south. He finally kind of starts to answer some of their question. Where is it going to? The point is numerous people. And sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed there are last who will be first. And there who are first will be last. And on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here. For Herod, the governor, right? Herod Antipas, um, who was over, um, um, help me here, Perea and Galilee. thank you. And he was turning around and he he, he, says, he wants to kill you. Remember, this is the guy that calls him to him. And Jesus, the only man, Jesus doesn't say a word before him. The worst thing that could ever happen when he says, entertain me, Jesus Show me your miracles. And Jesus doesn't say a single word to this man. He tries to put fear in Christ. He tries to put fear in Messiah. Fear's a liar, isn't it? Verse 32, and he said to him, go tell the fox. I like how he refers to him. Foxes in those days because of, again, the agriculture. They're insignificant. They're destructive animals. You know, not like we would think of a sly, that's you know, that's not how it was used back then. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be a pro- for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Can you imagine being that your definition? or how you're defined in history. That's how Israel is defined. That's that's their history. That's their legacy there. But God's not done with them, is he? As we'll read on here in in a moment. How often I wanted to gather your children, the Jewish people, together, as a hen gathers her brood, that means the chicks, under her wings, but you were not willing, even in their present condition, Jesus is nothing but love and he's extending his arms and he wants to bring them in close under his wings to care for them, even in their evil, their wickedness and their rejection. That's the true character of God. There's not a single person, somebody that's murdered somebody, today, no matter where you're at, what you've done, there's not a single person here, online, in the radio, in your car, wherever you are, that right now, if you call out to Jesus Christ, you repent, his arms are wrapped around you and he loves you and he'll forgive you for everything you've ever done, everything you've ever done. Not a, single, not a single person on earth. Even in the present age of what was going on. See, your house is left to you desolate. He says, this is what's going to come. In eighty seventy. that temple will be destroyed. They reference the temple as where the presence of God was. So the very religion that they hold on to, he says, even that will be destroyed. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, and this is the hope for Israel. This is why we honor and pray for Israel. Genesis 12, right? Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who cursed Israel will be cursed. God is not done with Israel. There is no replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's not biblical. He says it right here. There is a day Israel's going to cry out. They're going to call out. It'll be at the second coming. It'll be much different than how they responded to him at the first coming. And what does he say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of what? The Lord. And that's it.